IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we'll be talking to you, the IndieCast listener, and answering your questions about a wide variety of topics. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Okay, so I think I think I think I think I've mentioned in like previous uh, podcasts that I don't like drink or smoke or do drugs or any of that stuff anymore. But like, I, I'm trying to figure out if there's like a better high for the music writer for than like getting off like a viral tweet before like 5:30 in the morning, like. What people don't know about how I operate is that I wake up super early to get to this podcast. I go running, get the blood moving, and, you know, you just, like, 5.30 in the morning, of course, I'm checking Twitter. I say something stupid about Arcade Fire, and people are into it, and it's like, my day is all downhill from here. Like, I've accomplished... You know, I I thought there was nothing that could top getting a shout out in Anthony Fantano video, but I mean, just just the rush <laughs> of like you know, just the rush of getting off a good tweet like before the sun's up, nothing tops it. Um, but actually, uh, you know, I bring this all up because I mean, uh, if you listen to this podcast, if you follow me on Twitter, you know you know my vibe. Foxing's near my god is like probably my favorite song in the past couple of years because of its subject matter, which is that um, if you're dedicating yourself to a craft where the rewards aren't immediate, uh, you have this deep, deep need for validation. Like, does anybody care about the fact that I spent so much of my life writing about like emo bands with like a thousand monthly followers on Spotify? And it even goes into my real life job as well. But this weekend, um, if you want to talk about things that you wake up to on Twitter and you feel like, wow, like people really do care. So I wake up on Saturday and I see in my mentions that there's quite a few people bringing up the fact that Steve had promised on his previous episode, we made a bet that whoever gets the Linkin Park score right when Pitchfork reviews yes. Hybrid Theory there were like a lot of people in my bench saying, like, dude, man, Steve, you gotta make him listen to a dead bootleg. You gotta make him listen to a dead bootleg. And I mean, this was a part of the show, like really deep into it. This was not the intro. So I mean, shout shout out to our listeners, man. Like they are paying attention. Also, I did not listen to the bootleg, so sorry. <laughs> well, I gotta say, like, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because it was the most important thing to come out of our previous episode. Yes. That I predicted that Pitchfork would give the Linkin Park hybrid theory reissue a 7.6, which is hitting the half-court shot <laughs> at the buzzer. Nailed it. Didn't even bank it in. Nothing but net. <laughs> and I believe what I said was is that I was going to make you listen to the six-hour Big Cypress show by yeah. Fish, the New Year's Eve of you know the end of, of the Millennium show. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I feel... I don't really feel good making that a punishment because I feel like that is a privilege. <laughs> that is a great show. I'm like doing you a favor yeah. by making you listen to it. But um, yeah, we'll think of something. I don't know. But I I think that we were reminded that we have a good 
audience out there that they seem to be engaged. And it, it seems like we should be getting them more involved. So I, we had the idea that we're going to do our episode today, all reader questions, not reader questions, listener questions, mm-hmm. soliciting. I, we went on Twitter earlier this week and we solicited um, some questions that we could talk about on the show today. And we got a lot of good responses to the point where I think we're going to start doing a regular mailbag segment on this show. I think I think that would be a good idea. Yeah. My girlfriend asked me this morning, it's like, um, it's like, were any of the reader questions are like mean to you? And I'm like, IndieCast, like straight up good vibes, man. So oh, yeah. I, 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 I appreciate that. We love y'all out there. It's a love fest. We love our <laughs> listeners. They tolerate us, I think. Uh, they're humoring us by yeah. listening to us talks. But yeah, you know, we asked for questions and our listeners responded with some with some great, I think, conversa- conversation starters on this show. So w- why don't we get started? Yes. Our first question, actually our first couple questions have to deal with COVID. We got a lot of COVID-related questions, of course, that's not a surprise. COVID is on all of our minds, and there is a lot of speculation, if you're a music fan, about how is the industry going to come back from this? What is live music going to sound like? What are bands going to do in the meantime to survive You know, this work stoppage, essentially, that's yeah. been going on and is going to be going on for, for quite a long time? So our first question comes from Twitter. It's from STL Traffic Laws out there so and that might be a member of foxing for all i know it's from st louis yeah could be a member of foxing in disguise yeah they're all trying um, to leave st louis i think so <laughs> uh the question is how many bands that were on the cusp of success will we lose due to the end of touring during covid mm. um which we don't know that obviously we're just speculating here but yeah it does seem like uh there there may be some attrition there in terms of you know, can bands hold on through this, uh, again, this work stoppage that is indefinite, it seems like, at this point? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's been any examples of bands, like, straight up saying, hey, we're breaking up because, like, we just cannot make a living off this because of COVID. Um, but I think from our perspective, you know, not as fans, but also as, like, writers, as much as I bemoan the kind of horse race, like, sports aspect of music writing where we have to like check the stats and you know see who are the winners and who are the losers and frame things like a horse race um it's the like it's taken away the component uh i mean when we when we praise bands we write about bands like we want to see them succeed for the most part we want to be able to like kind of see how their fan base has grown or you know, whether they're touring in bigger places or whether they're like inching up the uh, festival uh, poster to a bigger font or whether they're playing the festivals to begin with or whether they're doing late night shows. And it's almost impossible to tell like which bands are sustaining uh, any sort of career growth off the buzz we off the buzz that they've gotten in the year. Because, I mean, yeah, new bands have released records. Um, there have been albums that have been celebrated from both you know, legacy bands and new bands alike. But what I think about is bands that were on the, like in any regular year that were like right on the cusp of possibly blowing up and then COVID happened. So I think, I mean, I can't believe we haven't talked about Dogleg uh, in this podcast yet. But if you, if you want to talk about a band that's like, I think really got screwed over by COVID and they've actually like said, 
like, hey, we've lost X amount of dollars from not being on South by Southwest and having our tours cancel. And oh, by the way, we lost our jobs because, you know, we have regular jobs that and so many of them have been lost to COVID. But Melee came out like I remember this exactly on March 13th, um, which I was in New Orleans at the time on like it was my birthday. We were on vacation uh, and it was, and I got back to work on Monday and then everything shut down. And I think that record, as much as we compare like Dogleg to like kind of the 2012 bands, like Japan Droids and Cloud Nothings and Waves or what have you, like the difference is like Dogleg is like a really, really good live band already. Like some of those bands I'd mentioned, a little erratic. And I think if they were able to do the South by Southwest thing and, maybe like hit some festivals or whatever they would i mean we'd be talking about melee in a much different way uh also like porridge radio they were another band that released an album on march 13th that has that very mid-sized venue uh i don't want to say like arena readiness but at i I also being a british band i think coming to america and being able to like um you know kind of let that album breathe that would have made a major difference as well and also when those albums dropped it was you know like people kind of didn't care about new music like this is when everything about COVID was abnormal and so I think those albums and also pretty much any hardcore band uh any band that plays heavy music when you're talking about like Gulch or Nouvelle Oscura or Infant Island um it's so odd to have 2020 be such a great year for heavy music and yet you don't get to see any of it live so i'm really curious about like how that's going to affect the release of like hardcore or metal albums going forward uh because most of these are released before covid yeah you know i think if there's a silver lining to this because i i agree with everything you said now i i would say that like any emerging band whether you know we've talked about Barty Strange on the oh, show, he's, God, yeah. he's come out this year. You you would think that he would probably be on tons of festival bills and and really killing it. You know, there's there's a band from Chicago called Rat Boys who put out like this really great record in I think it was in February. Yeah, that, might that's, have been January. That's, that was like a record that kind of felt like oh they're about to go to the next level. They kind of seemed like they had toured with Pup right before that. It yeah. seemed like they were they toured I mean, with I, everybody, I don't, man. Like I've seen them open for like every band. <laughs> I, I think I think the silver lining here possibly is that I think uh, fans have been reminded of how important it is to have a one-to-one relationship with the artists that they love. And we, we've seen this that, uh, you know, Bandcamp has been having these Bandcamp Fridays where essentially if you buy a record on that day, they give all the money to the artists. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like there's just maybe a little bit more awareness out there that, uh, you know, if you aren't buying records or you're not buying downloads, uh, then the artists really are not getting any money at all right now because they can't tour. You know, this buying records on Bandcamp might be the only way that you can support the artists that you love. Yeah. So hopefully that's something that people can take to heart and, and and just try to be a little bit more sensitive about that. If you're just streaming music all the time, you're not really helping the artists that you love in any way financially. So I think that will hopefully be a mitigating factor here, but obviously it's devastating that these bands can't tour. One thing that I'm curious about, and this is like a slight pivot away from the question, because I don't think any of these artists are like in danger of having their careers 
ending or anything. <laughs> but I do, I, I do wonder about like the legacy artists uh, that were poised to make a different kind of leap this year, who uh, are kind of like in this weird limbo where it, it just makes me think of like Michael Jordan retiring in the middle of the 90s and like how he was in his prime, but he was taken out of commission for a few years. And of course, he was able to come back and have tremendous success. But there is something about like, say, a band like Tame Impala. We, we've talked about that record quite a bit on the show in relation to COVID, how it felt like they put out the slow rush in February. It felt like, you know, Tame Impala in a normal year would have been set to be playing arenas and headlining festivals and they're already a big band, but this definitely takes the wind out of their sails at, at this point in their career. I think they're even bigger. Like I would, I heard that song like "Lost in Yesterday" on the radio a lot. Um, I like it's true, but 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 just not being able to uh, um, monetize that. Though, oh, of course. Well, know? monetize, yeah. But I mean, could they have been right. bigger though? Like I, I think they're already as. I couldn't imagine them like being more popular or like having a next level after currents that this album reaches. It's um, possible. I mean, I, I, but I, I guess I think about, and again, these two, these artists are also big too, but like, you know, the 1975, oh, they were the, yeah. doing an arena tour with Phoebe Bridgers opening. Oh, and yeah. I'm just, that's a tour I think about like, oh, that would have been pretty interesting. The alternate timeline, if that tour would have happened. Yeah. And obviously Phoebe, Phoebe Bridgers has had a really big year, mm-hmm. but if, if she would have been on an arena tour with the 1975, what would like, where would that have put her, you know, in relation to where she is now? I, that's something I think about. I mean, I think, um, you know, one thing that like I guess they do this with Fish, where <laughs> there's like different phases of Fish's career that fans talk about. Like there's 1.0 era Fish, which is like basically their career up until the early aughts when they went on a hiatus, uh, and then there was a brief period where they came back in the early aughts. That and that's 2.0, and then like the current era is 3.0. Mm. And I love that classification for like legacy artists and talking about different phases of their career. I kind of want to bring that into talking about other uh, kinds of kinds of bands. Like I wonder, because of COVID, how many artists are going to be entering their 2.0 era because huh. they've been sort of involuntarily put on hiatus and. You know, I because you're right, like Team Impala is still a, a tremendously popular band and you know, nineteen seventy five is still a tremendously popular band, but I it, it's hard for me to believe that like this break won't have some sort of impact on their career trajectory. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Again, it might be a Michael Michael Jordan thing where you take a break and then you just keep on being great. Mm-hmm. Or is there some kind of weird thing like where because eventually, you know, there's a generation that sort of tracks with certain acts, and then those mm. people get older, and then like other people kind of come along, and that a like, that a new generation embraces. And I just wonder if that break occurs during this COVID hiatus that we're in. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. With just, like you mentioned, like Phoebe Bridgers in 1975 and Tame Impala. Like by the end of it, like I think Phoebe Bridgers is maybe the only artist that's like come out of this whole thing like bigger than before because. 1975, Tame Impala, like, not good at, well, I mean, Matty Healy was good at Twitter before he got off Twitter. Uh, Tame Impala is not, like, a band that does that one-on-one interaction, but, I mean, Phoebe Bridgers is, like, just kind of masterfully handled this oh, yeah. this whole deal. But well, her music is, is better suited for this, too. Like, yeah. with, I think with Tame Impala and 1975, you know, there's a certain spectacle to them mm-hmm. seeing them live that I think adds 
something to the music. Like, like Tame Apollo, for instance, I think they have this, you know, detractors, I think, look at them as being sort of anodyne and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of flat. And actually live, it is a pretty, like, dynamic show. Not that Kevin Parker's dynamic, but no. they have <laughs> an amazing light show yeah. that goes well with the music. Uh, so I don't know. These are all kind of interesting things to contemplate, um, you know, as we look ahead to the future. Yeah, I just wonder, but I just wonder though, like which bands like are gonna like end up breaking up because of that, like where they just decide like, yeah, we can't do this anymore. Maybe I think we'll maybe see that more in twenty twenty one as like you know, the the reality of this, bec- like because I think a lot of people are like, oh, maybe we'll come back in twenty twenty one to start touring, but. Uh, yeah, I think next year we're going to like really see like the hangover effect bands in the way this reader mentions. Yeah. And, you know, and there will be, I'm sure acts that won't even get started, you know, because of this, you know, there's a lot of things that we're going to miss, uh, you know, because of, yeah, this, this, this work stoppage is, has just been Mm -hmm. devastating. So this dovetails into our next COVID question, our second COVID question, um, And it's from Chris in Chicago. This was an email. He says, right now I view what is happening with live music like a garden hose. We have officially pinched one part of it. Yes, I don't consider the drive-in shows actual concerts just yet, although I applaud the effort. Once the vaccine is found and restrictions are lifted, I believe concerts and festivals are going to come back in a major way, similar to letting go of the pinch of the hose. Yes, we get the garden hose uh, analogy. Very good. So tell me about... (laughs) What you think the concert landscape will look like when the time comes? Uh, and he says, "Please be 2021." Although, I mean, honestly, even if, if it's 2021, it will be late 2021. I'd imagine 2022 might be like the first kind of full-fledged yeah. year. Um, but this person seems to be saying that you know there's going to be so many bands that are going to be out there, um, and. There's also going to be, I guess, presumably people that are going to want to go see these shows. You know, one thing I'm curious about, I mean, we've we've talked about the band side already of this. I wonder what the psychological effect is going to be on the audience, even when there is a vaccine, presumably. You know, because, <laughs> because I know, like, before all this happened, you know, I went to festivals, I went to arenas, I was in packed music clubs. I, I never thought about germs, really. I never thought about... <laughs> could I get sick here? And I have gotten sick, um, I think, from being in an arena environment, um, especially, again, when you go to jam band shows and you're going, like, to three in a row. They call it the Wookiee flu. Uh, definitely gotten the <laughs> Wookiee flu before. But um, I just wonder, like, if people are going to be slow to return to these events because they're going to be thinking about COVID or thinking about some other illness or if there's almost going to be like, you know, because like right now we're, you know, we've seen sports come back and sports pretty much across the board are down and ratings mm-hmm. wise. And, you know, the assumption was that people were so desperate for entertainment that they were going to be rushing to sports. And that hasn't necessarily happened. I just wonder to what degree people being out of the habit of seeing live music is going to affect their behavior going forward. Because I know for yeah. me, like I'm excited to see live music. You know, I, I really miss it, but I'm also used to not going to concerts now, and yeah. and it's and I just want and, and and I'm more into live music I think than the average person. I just wonder, like for the average person, if you're used to not going to shows at some point, is it something you just are fine missing? 
now yeah when it comes back I, that's something i wonder about yeah i mean i think with like um just even pre-covid you think about i, I just think about my real life friends who uh were super into shows in their 20s and you know late 20s and they would and they start going to shows a little bit less and less because you know jobs kids other obligations and then they reach 40 years old and uh, they're like, hey, Ian, I want to go to this show with you. And they'll tell me that's like, hey, man, this is like the one show I've seen this year. Um, and so that that happens naturally. But I mean, I think this um, supernatural uh, destruction of the concert um, industry will I mean, I don't think people are going to be ready to come back yet. I think Elton John announced recently that his tour will resume in 2022. So I think we people are mentally preparing for 2021 to be a wash as well, because uh, I think when you look when you compare it to sports, like people showing up to sports, I do think there is a different audience. Um, I think like like college football, for example, like the players, they express their concerns about um, fans showing up or them being exposed. But it's a little bit more tamped down because, you know. You, you root for the University of Florida. You don't root for, like, uh, you know, the individual players as much. And, you know, what we saw is the LSU-Florida game, which is, like, the equivalent of, like, several fish shows as far as, like, audience and tailgating. Like, that got canceled because of a COVID spike. So I think bands aren't going to be particularly thrilled to come back just because of when you look at, like, who who's being careful in COVID and who wants to wear masks and who isn't like, you're not going to take our freedoms away. Like bands aren't going to, I'm really interested in what bands are going to be like the ones who dip their toes into the water first with live performances, because you do that particularly when there's still some uncertainty, like they can subject themselves to a lot of criticism. Um, And uh, so as far as like 2021 goes, I think they might get a little bit more creative. Like, the Flaming Lips did the bubble. Like, I think they want their fans to be in a bubble as well. And I think one another thing that people have to be mindful of, I think Chris was mentioning that it's like a garden hose that once live, if there's a vaccine or what have you, there's just going to be this explosion of live music and you're going to be able to see bands everywhere. And I mean, a lot of venues have shut down. A lot of bigger bands are the ones who are going to take the holds. So it's not an unlimited um, supply. You know, there's, there might be a lot of demand, but these smaller bands might get um, elbowed out of uh, playing these venues, which may not exist anymore. And yeah, yeah that's festivals, another thing. Yeah, festivals, like, I, I don't see those coming back till 2022 at the earliest. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think that, you know, the garden hose aspect of this um, – you know, I remember thinking even before COVID that there were that, that there were like a lot of bands on the road. <laughs> you know, like yeah. like like in my town, it's like you know, there's like multiple like notable shows every night to the point where it's just even if you like a certain act, like you can't go see everything. I mean, sometimes it's because there might be you know two two bands you like playing the same night, or it's like. You, you just don't want to go to clubs like every night of the week necessarily. So, you know, that was before COVID and now looking ahead to what the environment's going to be like after that and just, you know, the urgency that so many people are going to feel to go out on the road, 
even if they can get into a venue, it's just going to be super competitive, I would imagine. Um, you said before, like, and you're right, that like there's going to be so much competition to get into certain venues, the ones that are still around. You know, that's going to be a challenge. And then, yeah, just competing with the other shows that actually do get booked um, is going to be hard. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's interesting because we have seen bands play during this uh during this lockdown i mean like smash mouth played at yeah sturgis <laughs> we're talking about like smash mouth and like um or like Christ- bands that yeah like christian bands that don't like rockers i mean it, yeah it, and then you get into the kind of politics of it all like, right I, I feel like shows right now are they have the element of like sticking it to people that exactly are you know like supposedly in you know impugning on your freedoms by making you wear a mask so i'm gonna go see smash mouth at sturgis like just stick yeah. it to the libs or great um, white I would, yeah. you know so um again like these are all things that we can only speculate on this point because i mean who knows what live music is going to look like i mean we have we're all sort of living through this for the first time and we there's no precedence for this at all but I, I feel like we're we're being kind of pessimistic here. I I, I hope I hope that um, it, I hope it's not as grim. I guess as like yeah. as how we're saying it. I mean, I but think like what what thing in twenty twenty has ended up like better than we expected? I, I think it's hard to it's hard to be. I heard I think it's hard to be anything but pessimistic, particularly with live music. You know, right. So let's move on to the next question. Let's get off of COVID. Maybe try to oh. t- talk about something more uplifting. Uh, this question <laughs> comes from the fa- the fabulous Yawn from Twitter. Thank you, fabulous Yawn. Uh, yes. Do you guys have any bands that you're embarrassed you like or that a lot of people don't really like? Kind of guilty pleasures, even though I hate that term. Ian, why don't you go first? <laughs> I, I, I am so happy that we got to answer this question because... Um, Guilty pleasure has taken on so many. There's like a taxonomy of guilty pleasures uh, that I think doesn't get really get like uh, delved into because the fir- what I think this guy or fabulous John, this person, I, I don't know the gender of the person, but um, when they're talking about guilty pleasures, I think what they mean is the more antiquated term of like things that you're not quote supposed to like, things that are seen as like beneath. Uh, a more refined music listener. And the funny thing about that is it refers to, you know, teen pop or new metal or, okay, like first off, we did a new metal episode previously. And teen pop, I mean, like if you like teen pop, you're probably going to get like a book deal or write for the New York Times. I mean, like that, that is stuff that like over the past 20 years, certain uh, trends in music writing have led to, if you can find thing that may have once been seen as a guilty pleasure, like that's the sort that's your in, like that's going to be your niche and you're going to be a, probably in very prestigious publications explaining to your average reader, like, um, you know, why this supposed guilty pleasure is resonating with the kids. So that's right. like the first guilty pleasure that I think people uh, come to mind. Well, and I want to so, say too, that like, I feel like, and this is probably true of most music critics, but I feel like you yeah. and I have both made a point in our writing careers to talk about acts that are maligned or considered uncool uh, and defending them. So I don't know if those would be called guilty pleasures necessarily. Yeah, that, that's but like, like the bread and butter of like what we do. If you can find a guilty pleasure <laughs> like that, that like that is like hitting oil. Well, it is more interesting as a, as a music critic to talk yeah. about something 
you either want to be the first person to praise something or the first person to uh, say something sucks. Like you, you want to be first <laughs> in the door either way. And I think uh, generally in music criticism, I think one of the big trends is this, I guess, criminalization, if you will, of the term guilty pleasure. This idea that yes. like there are no guilty pleasures and you can always find someone who can speak intelligently about any act. Although, again, I do think that there are certain things that are considered uh, verboten in, in music yeah. criticism. Um, and I think we've talked about this before. I mean, but I think like mainstream rock is still like the genre that, you know, to talk about like really popular rock bands mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and to just dismiss them out of hand without really thinking about them. Like that's, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of like the one form of pop music where it's okay to just take a shot at it without yeah. really thinking about it. There is nothing more embarrassing to a gr- like a tw- like a grown music writer than like a teenage version of themselves who liked mainstream rock music. Um, and but I when we talk about like guilty pleasures is like act like actual things I kind of feel guilty about listening to now. Um, these are like the things that you kind of have to enjoy in private. Like for example, you know, if I'm feeling nostalgic for my last year of college, like, and I'm like, maybe it would be nice time to throw on Ryan Adams gold, like, <laughs> or like a sun kill moon, like stuff like that, where it's like, uh, or like music that can still like have like an emotion, you know, inspire emotional reaction with me. Like, have, I you, put, have you thrown I, on any, I, have you thrown on any Ryan Adams during uh, the uh, cancellation era? <laughs> Uh, do I, do I really want to like admit to any of this? Like that, but like, yeah, that's what you put. Like we have conversations on Twitter about like the Spotify private mode classics. Oh yeah. Um, for some people <laughs> right. that's like the Smith. Some people like will say like, yeah, I, I'll admit I still listen, like I still listen to brand new, but like, I'm definitely going to put it on private mode. So See, I ha- those are like the guilty pleasures, like where I'm like, do, should I be listening to this? See, you know? I have, I have other streaming uh, platforms on my phone like i i also have apple music because mm-hmm. then i can listen to like music from my own collection but that's uh, all that's also where i go for like the things i don't want people to see me listening to uh and it's usually just because i don't want people to see that i'm listening to uh you know steely dan's dirty work for like the the 10th time in a uh, day you know i don't <laughs> i don't need that out there so yeah so yeah it's like i've got like the separate streaming platform uh, for that, but yeah, I, I like the idea of having the Spotify private classics as yeah, well. Yeah, it's it, it's it's it, it it's so bizarre that like I have like that I feel like I'm being watched by people when I'm like, oh yeah, just, I don't like when that I, when, I, when I just want to remember what it was like to be like 21 and have like my brain encased in a steel reserve amber. We'll get into that when we talk about another question later on, but. Um, and even more, it's like when I, there's like the guilty pleasure stuff that I kind of feel guilty about because it contradicts with things I say on Twitter or just like this quote brand I carry where like I make fun of Ice Age, I make fun of LCD sound system, but like there are some songs it's like, yeah, like, yeah, I kind of listen to some of those. So you're worried about that? Like, you're worried about going against the Twitter brand then? You're like, oh, yeah, I'm, exactly. I, I actually love Whitney. I'm listening to Whitney nonstop yeah, like, on Spotify, even though I'm, <laughs> I'm taking shots on Twitter. I'm listening to the Idols record. I'm feeling it. I know. Like, what, what, you like, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, there have been a lot of bands I've like changed course on over the years, but 
still it's like oh god i'm gonna have to explain things if like the next whitney album actually you know i actually enjoy it but like i i at least give all of them a shot um and then there's like the last guilty pleasure of um bands that are so catered to me that like i almost feel embarrassed but for the for that band um and i think this is where we have to talk about like the one band that i I feel is like the guilty pleasure, the one band where I'm like, I was, I know I was suckered. I fell for it anyway. And I think you and I will have a lot to talk about this band. It, we're, of course, we're talking about Beach Slang, which is like, it, it just took this whole, like, you know, feeling sort of washed rock fan, but like somehow overcoming the odds to the next level. And, I mean, I knew at the time that this was not going to age well. I knew it was. I was being catered to. I knew I was being suckered. And like, if I were a strong, if it, if I were a stronger person, I would have put my foot down and say, like, look, man, like this is just corny. But I allowed I don't, myself I, to. I don't. I wouldn't use the term suckered. At least not for me. Like, I wrote a lot about beach slang. I, this was like 2015. Like, they're the peak of. I think I put their album. Uh, the the, the uh, like their first I voted album. At number two. I think I it was did too. I put it way up album. on my list. <laughs> I put a way, which is you know, I put it too high. But you know what? Like you're not reviewing records for posterity. You're reviewing records in the moment. I know. And it it hit me in the moment in a really good way. I mean, it's funny because I feel like that kind of band that you know the beer hoisting, rock till you drop type <laughs> punk band is like I've. It's not like I've given up on that kind of music. I still love that kind of music, but like I'm in a phase that's extended that is like I'm not really interested in that kind of stuff right now. Like the like the dude yelling over, you know, the chunky replacement slash Springsteen chords, you know, like it's just something that again I have some I have a lot of love for it in my heart, but like in the mind frame I'm in right now, it's just not something that I'm really feeling or, or, or feeling yeah. a lot of excitement for maybe just because I overdosed on that kind of music yeah. in that window of time that like 2012 oh, to 2015, 2016. I'll retract, I'll retract on being suckered. I mean, like I've had a real honest reaction to that music, um, but like there was the critic part of me shouting. It's like, dude, these rhymes are silly. Like, how is this person getting away with this? And I'm like, no, man, don't fight it. Feel it. And, well, and that's like part of the, the appeal of that band i think was the shamelessness of it and i think yeah <laughs> and you know you were saying i i sometimes feel guilty the guilty pleasure of like a band almost pandering to me like catering too much to me yeah which i still think that you have to be able to pull that off there's like a lot of bands i try to do that i think that they mm-hmm. did it pretty well um in that moment of time and they just weren't able to sustain it you know there was like one gear in the car there wasn't a second yeah. gear, and I think that's the thing with that band. And maybe they'll find that second gear at some point, and 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 we'll all be <laughs> doing a revisionist episode of for Beach Slang, you know. Yeah, um, but I, I don't think that'll. I, I've I don't think that'll happen. But I'll. T- I listened to those that first album, those EPs, and it's just like man. Like just take me back to that more innocent time. <laughs> I mean, the like, thing, the thing. I think the most lasting thing for me with Beach Slang was that they made me revisit the Goo Goo Dolls. Speaking of uh, like a mainstream rock band that has no cachet and is pretty uncool, uh, you know, I was like, oh man, 
there's a lot of good Goo Goo Dolls records from the 90s. Like yeah. their, their run, I guess, from Superstar Car Wash mm-hmm. to Boy Named Goo and then Dizzy Up the Girl, like those three albums. Really good pop rock music. And they were uh, on Metal Blade at one point, man. They they, right. they they got they got some real hardcore roots. So you know, I guess we're coming full circle here. I, I, would Goo Goo Dolls <laughs> be a guilty pleasure band? I mean, I feel no guilt about liking that, but I feel like they're a band mm-hmm. um, that you know I feel like had some revisionism in maybe yeah. certain circles, but not a broader. Uh, you know, sense of revisionism. I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't think they got the, some good singles. Like, I don't think you can make the argument of like Dizzy Up the Girl or like a boy named Goo is like a lost classic. I think they're in kind of the Jim Blossoms uh, sort of realm where like the singles are just like bulletproof um, and they're not like terrible. They're not like what they've been seen as is like these like car- like carpetbagger bands like trying to like uh, make hay off the alt rock boom. Uh, you know, but I think there is respect for the craft of a song like Black Balloon, like, and that's not hard to find these days, or even which like, is great. I mean, like a song like Name, which oh, I think I song. I was so sick of at the time because it was on the radio all the time. <laughs> I was actually thinking about that song the other day, and I was like, "That's a really good song." Like that. Okay, I think that's a really good tune. But but yeah. I mu- I must interject here with like Name is good, but then Iris came out, and I had to make a rule with my first year roommate in college because. He played Iris like 10 times a day. So I just said to him, like, dude, no more than two times a day when I'm in the room. Uh, he also had eight. He also had five Dave Matthews band posters as well. But um, man, so yeah, there, there was a, a time where I, 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 w- I just hated Goo Goo Dolls for that reason. What a weird song for like a 19 year old college student to be into <laughs> even in the 90s this, was the university of, this is the university of virginia oh, in 1998 man. he loved dave matthews band uh dave matthews band and tim reynolds guster another one so it's like yeah well, he that that is col- that was what i thought college rock was until people showed me like oh the pixies i mean like in 98 like, like you wouldn't have to even play iris just turn on the radio i feel like yeah. that song was on constantly but just to be like, nah, I still need more Iris. I'm gonna play yeah. Iris on a maybe, loop. Maybe that, maybe that's what's like the guilty pleasure that's gonna come back, like horde tour stuff, where you get like, I mean, you see some of that with Dave Matthews Band, but maybe there's gonna be someone who comes around with like a really good like blues traveler take or uh, G Love and Special Sauce. Um, I think the horde tour is a very uh, that is an untapped resource for uh, critical reappraisal. Well, but I, I it's funny that you say that because that will that would probably be me writing that piece, <laughs> talking about the horde bands, all yeah. those like Woodstock, Woodstock '99. You're off that. Now we're doing horde. Oh, tours, absolutely. Natural progression. Well, my boys, the Black Crows, were on the Horde tour one year. Oh, yeah. So you know, I've already got one foot in the door there. But uh, I mean, <laughs> Wil- I mean, Wilco was on the Horde tour the same year huh. as the Black Crows, like right when they put out AM. They were on the Horde tour. Um, huh. Yeah, I mean that whole like mid '90s scene of like poppy hippie music, I think is a really fascinating time where you've got Blind Melon and Dave Matthews mm. Band, Blues Traveler, Rusted Root. Oh, yeah. I guess oh, Spin Doctors would be rude. in there too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, Joan Osborne. Um, yeah. Counting Crows are kind of adjacent to that. Maybe? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, they're um, <laughs> they were such a big pop success early on that like they were too big to play Horde. I think like they could. <laughs> I honestly, they were you know because like that first record sold like seven or eight million copies. Yeah. So you know, Horde was more for like. I mean, I think Blues Traveler started that. 
Yeah, that was like more straight jam. And also, yeah, and those bands were like, I think, like a step below in popularity. Although, I mean, Blues Traveler, um, they ended up like the year that the, the year that the Black Crows were on the tour. Blues Traveler were like the supporting band because the Black Crows were bigger. And then by the end of the tour, Blues Traveler had Run Around and uh, Hook, all their big hits. So then they wanted to be the headliner. And man, I didn't think we. This is why it's great to do reader questions because <laughs> we're going deep on the Horde tour. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm like I, we we need like an actual episode on the Horde tour. I think so. And you know, we're actually I think running short of time here. We have a bunch oh. of questions that we didn't get to, but we're gonna do a mailbag segment. I think every week from now, uh, here on I, out. Don't yeah, you think? the more horror tour, the more horror tour questions, the better. <laughs> if you want to like, if you want, if you want to do smoke and grooves as well, oh my that god, would be another cool one or yeah, just let, we're just really gonna get into the mid '90s festival. Like, given that like the 2010s festival scene of like Coachella and associated tours is not happening, like let's do it big '90s Warped Horde. Oh my god, Lilith, let's let's get busy, man. I mean. <laughs> I love those theme tours. I think that's a, I mean, I guess that still happens now. I mean, you've got like some of the smaller uh, festivals that are a little more like hubs for scenes. Yeah. As opposed to like the, the broad Coachella Lollapalooza type thing. But um, yeah, I love, I, I love that the hippies had like a foothold in the pop world. I think that just shows the diversity of different kinds of music that were popular in the nineties. And I, I, yeah. Whereas I think people were buying CDs for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) It's like a band like, like that. I just remember like rappers, like being like, they would like talk like very shamefully if they didn't sell platinum. Like that was like a running theme on red man's albums. Like, man, like he was selling like 500,000, like 700,000 albums. And that was like shameful for a major, major label rapper. And like back when they cost like eighteen dollars, right? Exactly. Yeah. If you didn't go gold back then, they pretty much just like put you on a on an iceberg yeah. and sent you out to sea. I mean, because like yeah, like <laughs> like local H would tell me, it's like yeah, man, we sold only a hundred thousand, and the label was like, we'll give you one more chance to have a success. Right. Exactly. Oh, man. All right, so we're going to do mailbags from now on, and uh, I would apologize to the people that we didn't get to, but you don't know if we picked your questions. So <laughs> just rest assured that if you gave us a good question, we did take note of it, and we will hopefully get to it to a future episode. Otherwise, hit us up on Twitter, or you can email me at steve.hyden at uprocks.com, and we'll answer your question. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right. Steve, you, you ever just, like, listen to old music? <laughs> like, like old, we talk about new music a lot here, but, like, old music's pretty tight as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, one of the questions that we didn't get around to today was just talking about, like, what you consider to be fall albums and my idea of what albums work well in the fall like come from a time where i actually lived in uh parts of the country that have seasons such as virginia and georgia and when i think about fall like my mind is kind of frozen in this 2003 to 2005 space and over the last couple of days i've really 
just felt this urge to revisit um, Radio Rock back from like 2001 to 2003, like stroke. I listened to Is This It and then White Blood Cells on the same day and in the shins. Um, and of course, like when you listen to the classics, you're going to get into the, you know, the, the things, ju- the B teamers. And to me, no album has hold, holds up as well as like B team early 2000s rock as the stills logic will break your heart. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, like I may bring this album up like every couple of months, but I was going to say, like, I don't feel like it has to be fall for you to put this album on. But it really... You you bring up the stills fairly (laughs) often. But something... I do think it has that um, kind of an autumnal feel to it where... um, Or maybe it's just my own associations with that. But um, I want to just kind of give a shot, not just to the stills, but also to, uh, like, the B team of, like, the New Rock Revolution or this area of time between that, you know, Strokes, White Stripes, and the OC, where you listen to Stills, you got to listen to Kala as well. And just going through the um, Spotify fans also like, it's like, wow, maybe I'll give a Stella Star album a new listen, another listen. Or what about Elephant? Um, or maybe the second Hot Hot Heat record. Um, with those, like, as much, you know, it's purely nostalgic. Um but also it makes me think about new music in a different way because I would highly recommend you go find the Pitchfork review of the stills Logic Will Break Your Heart. It was written by William Bowers and this guy like makes Brett DiCrescenzo seem like I, I don't like it makes him seem like just some dude on Twitter like making 140 quote tweets because this is like just real wild man Um off-the-wall type writing. I think it's hilarious. He made fun of the record. I think the review is incredible, but it makes me think about music uh, nowadays. Like, what stuff am I missing out on that would be, like, legitimately enjoyable because it wasn't, like, critically acclaimed? Or, like, you know, it's so hard to give my attention to new music. And I just, I also, I just worry so many times that uh, I'm missing out on, albums like the stills or like their analogs and say rogue wave uh these kind of b team 7.5 number 44 album of the year type things just because the person who reviewed it didn't think it was that hot um i if you if there are versions of the stills or rogue wave in 2020 please inform me of who they are if you're out there doing the work let me know because i uh, here I am talking about the stills 17 years later. And yes, yeah, I, I just want that. Like com- I want that indie rock comfort food. Please tell me what it is. You know, I think that there's still records like that. And I think we probably talk about them on this show fairly often. I think most of indie cast core would qualify as that. Mm-hmm. It's just that those records aren't getting the same kind of push that they did in the early aughts. They're not like the stills. Um, you know, they, we don't remember them as a major band, but like there was like, I feel like when that record came out, you know, there was like a little bit of a push of like, oh, this is the, like the next big sort of strokes like band, yeah. you know, and there there was like a wave of, of hype, and and now a band like that would only get a wave of hype on this podcast, <laughs> but that's okay. That's all you need uh, is the IndieCast bump. Um, as for my recommendation, I mean, we're recording this episode on Thursday. You know, we we come out on Friday. I imagine that on Friday I will be listening to the new Sturgill Simpson record, which is called Cut and Grass. Mm. 
20 songs, sort of bluegrass reimaginings of songs from his uh, first uh, four records. Uh, so I'm sure I'll be listening to that, but I have not heard it yet at the time of recording this. So I'm going to talk about some older listening that I'm doing too. I've been really into listening to Brian Eno records from like 1973 to 1977. And look, Brian Eno obviously talked about as a foundational artist of certainly indie music, alternative music. Um, But sometimes I feel like with these like huge, you know, sort of iconic artists that uh, you get so swept up in sort of the legend or like what people have written about them that the music itself can get lost. And I think it's actually worth revisiting like the greats every now and then. And I've just been so struck by the music that he made in this period and how just one, like how fresh it still sounds. Mm -hmm. And two, just like how many people jacked oh yeah their act from him and and not just people in the well i should say first first of all that in this period this period encompasses uh eno's i guess four pop records which would be here come the warm jets uh taking tiger mountain by strategy another green world and before and after science it's also the beginning of him making ambient records mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, there's records like Evening Star, which is a record that he made with Robert Fripp. Uh, there is Discrete Music, which was, I guess, his first four-way, his first foray into the ambient world. Um, and I'm always struck with Eno because, again, he has this reputation as being this sort of intellectual guru. He's the person that rock bands often turn to when they want to stop making guitar music and move into to a more experimental direction. You know, that's what Talking Heads did. That's what U2 did. That's what Coldplay did. Radiohead didn't do it, but they sort of took some ideas yeah. that Brian Eno talked about on their uh, on I their think records. Tree Fingers um, was like a direct Brian Eno ripoff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's also uh, elements of how they made Kid A and Amnesiac that were drawing on some of the ideas that... Mm. Brian Eno had in his Oblique Strategies cards, and uh, you can read about that more in my book, This Isn't Happening. Ah. There's a quick plug. Um, But anyway, um, he has this reputation as being this intellectual guru on one hand, but there's also like an incredible warmth and surprising accessibility to his records. Even the ambient records are always very beautiful and tuneful. And the pop records that he made, again, it's like this combination of like sort of innovative techniques uh, sort of deconstructing what rock music is supposed to be, and yet it's always uh, very catchy and poppy. And uh, I'm always just amazed by how he's able to thread that needle. And I feel like that is the thing that rock bands were always looking for when they started working with him. How do we make our records sound maybe a little less down the middle, but also you know, not losing the essential sort of emotionalism that we're going for. I mean, I think that in a nutshell is what U2 wanted when they first, yeah. first started working with him. Um, I also have to give a shout out to Eno's record from 1990 that he made with John Cale called Wrong Way Up, mm. which is maybe a little less celebrated than this initial run that I'm talking about, this mid-70s run by, by Brian Eno. But again, Wrong Way Up, a delightful record, uh, just wonderful pop songs, uh, almost like a gospel feel to some of the songs, just really uplifting and uh, the kind of music that put me in a good mood when I was contemplating the darkness of the live <laughs> music industry. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, if I'm thinking about that, I'll put on some of these Eno records and, and, and they put me in a good mood. So again, if, you, if you've never listened to those records, I, I think, you know, check them out now. If you have, 
if you're a fan already, go back, revisit it. I think you're always going to find new things in that yeah. music that you're going to appreciate. With, with, with me, like, you know what I was saying, like, when we started this, like, you know, you ever just, you know, listen to old music? Like, when I listen to Brian Eno records, I mean, even with all the received wisdom and, like, baggage of, you know, the canon, I just listen to those records that you mentioned, like, the real, the early on things. And I'm thinking to myself, man, like, why don't I just, like, listen to this all the time? Like, it's the same feeling <laughs> I get when I listen to Led Zeppelin, where it's like, how can I listen to, like, some you know, random indie rock, like 6.0, like forgettable indie rock album. You know, it's like, maybe I'll just like listen to old music from now on because like, <laughs> this is like the best stuff I've ever heard. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, because there's always that thing of like, do I like this because it has the home field advantage of like history yeah. on its side? Or, you know, is it genuinely great? I think it's like a little bit of both. Yeah. But I think that music, certainly with Eno... Again, it's it's a touchstone for so many things that I like that came after him that mm. it really does feel like going back to the source yeah. in a lot of ways when you listen to music like that. And there's other artists like that that feel like they're the source. And I think and I and I and I'm a firm believer in revisiting that stuff. You don't want to just live in that world. Of course, not. I think it is good to, of course, to embrace the new and all that, but. Uh, yeah, it, sometimes it's just for nourishment. It's nice to go back to the yeah. greats, and then you're nourished, and then you can go back and <laughs> and take in the new stuff. Yeah. Sometimes that stuff is as good as people say, you know. <laughs> exactly. So you heard it here first. Brian Eno is good. Yeah. Uh, glad we could finally uh, establish that. Thank you all for listening to uh, this episode of IndieCast. We will be back with more reviews and news and hashing out trends and your questions next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. Music